Welcome to Defend the Faith Live. Defend the Faith Live is a Perusia podcast series where we join Dr. Robert Haddad to take a look at a chapter a month of Dr. Haddad's excellent book on Catholic apologetics with host Matthew Herman Tague. In this, our first episode, we introduce you to the book, Defend the Faith, and cover our first topic, the Blessed Trinity. Defend the Faith Live is recorded online with a live audience in Perusia World. To be part of the live online audience during these recordings, and to interact in the live member-only Q&A sessions that follow, please join us in Perusia World by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Perusia World for all the information on how to join. Perusia Podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Dr. Robert Haddad, welcome to Perusia World. Yeah, thanks very much, Matthew. I'm very happy to be here. It's always an honour. I myself am absolutely delighted uh, to be starting with this with you. Uh, Defend the Faith Live. This is uh, this is incredibly exciting. This is basically a student who is uh, looking for greater knowledge in the faith, uh, to deepen my faith, and to be able to defend my faith. And I'm I'm sitting before a teacher. And so this is, uh, this is very, very exciting for me. Well, I'm glad you're excited. And I'm also excited too, because um, I always believe we can never really get enough of apologetics. And there is a thirst, there is a hunger out there, and we've got to meet that hunger. And it's mm-hmm. a hunger across all age groups and all different types of communities. And, um, and also, I must say, I'm actually a believer in the book, Defend the Faith. It's a creation mm. from my own experience over 30 years. And I think it reflects the experiences of many people today and their encounters they have with different types of people, different backgrounds, etc., and the challenges that they face personally. Excellent. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And this is going to be a, a monthly podcast, a monthly uh, tutorial and uh, I think when we first talked about it, we realized that it's probably going to take over four years to do this, uh, go through each and every chapter, isn't it? Yeah, well, Defend the Faith is 50 chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we do one a month, it's going to take more than four years. There might be a month or two where we might have a break, depending. But I'm very excited about it. I'm very happy to do it. I think this will be a great resource that goes, uh, that, that's paralleled with the book itself. Um, and not everyone likes to read or have has the time to read, but more and more people are going to the electronic mediums today. Uh, and uh, if they can just access it through, you know, listening to this broadcast, etc., that'd be great. Indeed, in fact, uh, our director and your friends, our founder director Shabal Raish, said, "This is awesome. This is long overdue." <laughs> I'd have to agree. Um, I was wanting to make 10 minute videos on each chapter and I only ended up doing two. Uh, And I'm glad I'm partnering with you because that will give me the discipline to get ready every month to make sure it happens. Uh, And I will hopefully definitely get well beyond two chapters. Excellent. That is the plan. Mm. Well, you've already uh, mentioned one word that we should probably dive into straight away and that is apologetics. 
So Dr. Robert Haddad, what is apologetics? Should Catholics really be apologizing for their faith? No, never. I mean, there are things we should apologize for in the history of the church, the personal failings of individuals, etc. But we don't have to apologize for our faith as such. Uh, I believe that the Catholic faith is the fullness of truth. All its articles of faith are can be defended from scripture, apostolic tradition, from reason, etc. Apologetics is an English word derived originally from a Greek word, apologia, which means give a reasoned explanation for what you believe in. It's more than a defense. Uh, we can normally translate it as a defense of what we believe in, but I like to go a little bit broader than say defense, uh, because I don't want to be on the defensive. Apologetics is not simply being on the defensive, but actually it's a service. It's a positive service to the other. <clears throat> it's allied with evangelization, as it was always from the beginning. When we look at the gospels, we look at the Acts of the Apostles, we look at um, you know, the lives of St. Peter and St. Paul. When they evangelized, hand in hand with their evangelization was apologetics, giving a reasoned explanation for why Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Very good. And of course, we, we may have people uh, listening to this recording uh, who have never met Dr. Robert Haddad. So before we dive into the book, I suppose we should ask, who is Dr. Robert Haddad? Well, I'm a Maronite Catholic. Um, I've been practicing my faith fervently since my early 20s. Before then, I had a very patchy upbringing, uh, Maronite Catholic parents who, of course, I got baptized. I got, you know, we ticked the box of Holy Communion, but I wasn't really a regular practicer of the faith on and off mass attendance. Very rarely would I go to confession. I might go four, four and a half years between each confession. Very rarely I would go to Holy Communion. I certainly knew little about my faith, but I think there was always something there and I have to thank my parents for that. But the first real leg up was when I was 15 and I was invited by a Baptist friend of mine from school. I never had a Catholic education. I was in a public school to go to the Billy Graham crusade. I made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I made it as a weak Catholic, but that was my first strengthening of my faith. And of course, I, as having Baptists and Sydney Anglican friends who are all evangelical in their background to one degree or another, and the challenges I received from them about various Catholic teachings concerned me for the next six years from the age of 15 to 21. And it was only after I had another trauma in my life uh, relating to my studies in, at university and depression that, that and meeting other very staunch Catholics uh, from my university days that I began to take my Catholic faith much more seriously. And that was my what I say is my solid Catholic conversion in my uh, early 20s. I went on to leave my career in law, become a school teacher, and I was very concerned about making sure that my students received the Catholic faith clearly, accurately, faithfully and strongly, and with a, 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 a tinge of apologetics as well as a strong moral import. So in the last 31 years, I've been in heart heart, body, and soul in Catholic education. Uh, and always there's a, a stream of apologetics within that. I've got various degrees specializing in apologetics, a master's of philosophy in the apologetics of St. Justin Martyr, 
a PhD in new apologetics and creating a secondary curriculum of new apologetics that can be used in Catholic schools. I've had time, I've been graced with the time and the support from my family to write books, various books. The most, my most popular, the one I like the most, of course, is Defend the Faith, etc., on which this series is based. And I'm very, very happy to be in partnership with Perusia Media. I think it's a great apostle. It's certainly one that's heaven sent and a lot in a Sharbal and all the team at Perusia, including yourself and, and Miguel and, and everyone else. You deserve a lot of praise for the great work you do to make apologetics present, but also exciting and enjoyable for people. And that's that's a that's part of my mission too. I could say many other things. I've lectured at Notre Dame for 10 years as a sessional. I was director of Confraternity of Christian Doctrine, serving the volunteer catechists. Um, I also worked at the University of Catholic Chaplaincy for the Archdiocese of Sydney, before then 15 great years at St. Charles College, and now currently as manager of Network Catholic Identity in the Sydney Catholic Schools Network, with a responsibility for faith formation of teachers, youth ministry, and family educators. And having that role will never leave me without work. I assure you there's plenty of work in that realm. Excellent. Uh, yeah, good people are very much needed in that field. Of course, if anyone is more interested in uh, the conversion uh, testimony of Dr. Robert Haddad, it can be found on his YouTube channel. Robert, tell us about your YouTube channel. Um, yeah, I've had that going since uh, early 2017, and I've got about 250 odd videos up there now. Uh, they're videos that are not the most professionally created, uh, but you know, they're generally of my talks and other uh, my smaller videos relating to my book, 1001 Reasons Why It's Great to Be Catholic. Um, I'm excited, very excited about the YouTube channel because I know it reaches people in different parts of the world. And what excites me the most is to get the feedback from people who tell me how, how useful the videos are and how informative and how they learn their faith or are strengthened in their faith and get to know the answers to challenges that they experience themselves. I must say at the moment, though, my channel is struggling. I think ever since late last year, November last year, the algorithms have been manipulated. And so my viewership has dropped about 70 percent. Uh, we're from a from a very stable position that it held for nearly four years before that. But we struggle on. We, we, we remain determined to make sure that we are still producing videos, still uploading them, still reaching out to as many people as possible. Uh, there are many other great Catholic YouTube channels, uh, far better than mine and with far more viewership. And that's just great. That's the more, the better. And that's our, our mission uh, to create to be in partnership with other apologists and to create a new generation of apologists. And it's a good reminder too to us Catholics that we need to be very deliberate when we're in social media and places like YouTube. If we're just scrolling through the feed, we're at the behest of the artificial intelligences that are running the algorithms. And it's up to those artificial intelligences whether or not we see a video. But if we're serious about uh, our Catholic faith and, and receiving good Catholic content, we need to be very deliberate. We need to actually go to the channels, go to the pages so that we can actually see the posts. We can't rely on the, the algorithms to give us mm. what we need to mm. see. Mm. Now, on your YouTube channel, remind me, your testimony is entitled? Um, 
from Billy Graham to Catholicism. It's actually the most popular video on my channel. It received a huge spike after yeah. Billy Graham died um, some years back uh, in 2018, I think around February 2018. Mm. And that video was getting about 4,000 views a day in and around the time uh, Billy Graham died because I think a lot of American Protestants were shocked to, to, to come across a video entitled How Billy Graham Made Someone Catholic. But going to the Billy Graham crusade uh, mm. was a definite step on the road to a more fervent Catholicism. Firstly, a more fervent and uh, commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ personally. And from there, to have a desire for truth and to explore uh, and to seek out all the answers to the questions that I was receiving from my Baptist and Anglican friends until I eventually came across another book, The Question Box, in February 1986 that gave me all the answers that I was aspiring to for many years. And this is a, a very good reminder to us that our separated brethren, our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, a lot of them are searching for truth and uh, they do have a great love of Jesus Christ and they, they have a love of God, they have a love of scripture and we are doing Catholic apologetics and it is my hope as I'm sure it is yours that many of our separated brethren will check out these videos to find out exactly what the Catholic Church teaches because that too is part of my journey. Um, I left the church at about the age of 13 when my first addiction kicked in. I, you know, I, I picked up many other addictions along the way. My testimony is also public. Um, but it wasn't until I got um, sober and started battling the disease of alcoholism that I, I truly started becoming open to the spiritual and eventually became Protestant felt the call to ministry and went off to a non-denominational Bible college to study to become a Protestant minister. And the first thing that really got me looking at my Catholic faith uh, from my youth was hearing things in the classroom that I thought weren't quite right. And so I made a, an important decision, and that was to study the Catholic claims alongside the Protestant claims, but with one important distinction, I would study the Catholic claims from Catholic sources. I think you'd agree with that, uh, that that was probably what started me on the journey home, right, Robert? Well, I agree emphatically. One, probably the saddest experience, I think, of you know, more than 35 years involved in Catholic apologetics in one form or, or another, is that I can say this with great confidence. I've never met a Protestant of any kind, of any disposition, of any personality who actually knows and portrays the Catholic faith accurately. I'm not saying they're insincere by no means. These are, for the great majority, the great majority of these people are sincere, but they've just adopted without question uh, the straw man version of Catholicism that they have been presented with either through the homilies or the sermons that they listen to or the books that they read or the videos on YouTube that they watch. And this is our great mission to cut through the smoke screen, to put out the, the fire of the straw man and to actually deliver as an act of charity, an act of love, the authentic 
Catholic faith so they can see it for themselves and they get a great, it's a great revelation for them. Yes. I sure yes. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly was uh, for me. Okay, mm -hmm. so we're going to get started. So uh, what our, anyone who's, who's going to watch these videos, anyone who's joining us for the live and for the private Q&A afterwards, I suggest that you'll need three things. Three things. Firstly, scripture. Of course, I'm using the Great Adventure Bible here that has been produced by Ascension. You will also need the little green book, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because I'm sure we'll be referring to it uh, more than once. And lastly, and not least, Defend the Faith by Robert Haddad. And all of these can be purchased at the Perusia website. Just go to the Perusia uh, website, perusiamedia.com, and click on the store, and you'll be able to get access to all of these. And of course, we'll put links into them uh, on the, for the, in, in the show notes at the bottom as well. Well, I think uh, I thought what I'd do um, to get us started off, uh, Robert, is uh, to read the foreword from the book. Um, and this foreword is by uh, Father Peter Joseph, who is a priest who, as we're speaking, is the parish priest of Flemington in Sydney. And so let's start with the foreword from Father Peter Joseph. Apologetics is the art of providing a reasoned defense for one's beliefs. For Catholics, it is the business of defending their faith against the many attacks launched against it today. All faithful Catholics should be both willing and able to defend their faith. From the earliest days of Christianity, the church as a whole and individual Christians have continuously been called upon to defend their claims regarding Jesus Christ, particularly his divinity and resurrection from the dead. Over the past 2000 years, there have never lacked enemies of the humble carpenter from Nazareth, nor has there been a lack of defenders. Unfortunately, apologetics fell upon hard times after the mid 1960s. This drop off coincided with the collapse in effective catechesis, mass attendance and vocations to priestly and religious life. Australia was not immune to the, this decline. Though renowned for producing some of the most effective apologists, in particular Frank Sheed, Australia likewise saw apologetics virtually disappear from the scene. If it continued to exist, it was only in the hearts and minds of a few enthusiasts who continued to read old books. Providentially, apologetics in recent times has made a remarkable comeback in the English-speaking world. This revival has come out of the United States and is characterized by an explosion of new literature, dynamic speakers, and exciting converts. This phenomenon is being closely watched and replicated in Australia. Defend the Faith is a prime example of some of the exciting things happening in Catholic apologetics in Australia. There are few introductory books that cover so many topics so thoroughly and persuasively based strongly on scripture, along with church fathers and formal church documents. It is a must for those who wish to lay a solid foundation for defending their Catholic faith, 
I could not recommend a better book to those beginning their adventure in apologetics. Father Peter Joseph, STD, September 2011. So high praise, high praise there from Father Peter Joseph. I know Father Peter Joseph myself, and uh, I have a lot of respect for him. So that is a that is a wonderful forward to to the book, Robert. Yeah, and I'm very honoured to have that forward, and and um, under his name because Father Peter Joseph is great for many reasons, and he's an apologist, an excellent apologist in his own right, and he took the book of. Um, Archbishop Michael Sheehan, Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine, which was an outstanding apologetics work used in schools and seminaries in the 1930s and 40s, which had sold over 400,000 copies in Australia at a time when Australia's population was between just six and seven million. And he took that book and he updated it for our modern times. And it's an excellent resource. I think you need, if you're going to buy Defend the Faith, buy Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine, the revised version of Father Peter Joseph as well. I totally agree. I actually have a copy of that book myself and mm. it is truly excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, the, uh, the, the chapter tonight is the Blessed Trinity. Now, the objection that you've given in the book is thus. The doctrine of the Trinity is not found in the Bible. It is really a disguised form of pagan polytheism, the worship of three gods in one. And I'm also reminded, uh, as I was preparing for tonight, um, of the uh, few times that the um, Jehovah's Witness have come to my door. Uh, since I became Catholic, I, I get very excited when the Jehovah's Witness turn up at the door because I actually know something about my Catholic faith these days. And their argument seems to go thus, that in the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, the opening of John's gospel is the word was with God and the word was a God. Now, of course, I'm referring to the four great unical codices. There's four of them. I'm going to cheat and, and just look over here at my Wikipedia article. The Codex Vaticanus, abbreviated B, the Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Alexandrinus A and Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. So there's four um, ancient codices. A codex is simply a collection of books from, and it was referred to as a codex from antiquity through the Middle Ages. And the Jehovah's Witness who came and sat down over a, a cup of coffee with me at my dining room table showed me this, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. Could you? Remind me of the Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus. Yes, that's that's uh, something that our viewers are going to have to get used to. I'm going to butcher all sorts of languages, but thankfully Robert's going to correct me every time. Um, and so they point to this codex and they say, "Look, it's, it says here. It says here that the word was was with God, and the word was a God." But they well, don't have I that right, do they, Robert? Well, no, they don't. And it's a butchering of the Greek because um, the Greek text there in John's gospel is hotheos. Um, or, and that is not an indefinite article. A, to say a God, the letter A in English is an indefinite article. If there's no indefinite article 
in the Greek, they simply insert it. Whether you insert the definite article or an indefinite article depends on the context of the, the, the whole chapter and verse. Okay, mm -hmm. so they just to suit their own theology, they determine for themselves to uh, translate the Greek with a, an insert an indefinite article. So it reads, and the word was a God rather than God. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the context really demands that we insert the uh, definite article, the God. And the word was the God, or in English, we just translated as, and the word was God. Hmm. And that's, and we know that's the correct translation um, because that's what we've received from the church fathers onwards. There's no ancient scripture, there's no ancient church writings of any father, etc., which uh, gives us the text with an. Uh, indefinite article so really i would have to say it's at least to say the least a compromised text just to suit their version of theology it doesn't stand up to the uh, and the analysis of any greek scholar etc and and even if we gave them the argument and said yeah okay may, maybe that codex says that you've got one of the four ancient codexes which might say that and as we've seen you can definitely argue against it but it's it's simply not very good science or contextual analysis critical textual analysis to say that the outlier the one out of the four is the correct translation mm. but the three are incorrect it's just not good science no, of course not. And you would just for just for the common person, common sense would speak to the ordinary person and say, well, that's that the one out of the four is the exception, not the norm. And we presume we should presume to go with the norm unless there's evidence strongly to the contrary. We don't have that evidence strongly to the contrary. So, yes, again, it's really just an invention from the mid 19th century onwards. Um, besides that, of course, we got other texts that support one, the divinity of Christ, and two, of course, for tonight's topic, the divinity, so the, the Holy Trinity. So, um, yeah, they have to work at explaining all the other texts that we could put forward. And of course, uh, if we are going to assume that John's gospel was written by the Apostle John and that John is a good Jewish boy, would he ever write that there was more than one God? No, of course not. But also, <laughs> we understand that historically the purpose of John's gospel was an apologetical gospel in defense of the divinity of Christ. And that's, that's the historical context. And, of course, you get other texts as well. John 8, 58, um, Jesus said, um, before Abraham was, I am. He gave himself, he attributed to himself the divine name of Yahweh. That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him for the sin of blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And then, of course, we've got the, the testimony of St. Thomas the Apostle, beholding Jesus uh, after his resurrection, falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. So there's enough text that really we can rely upon. Even if John 1, 1 didn't exist, 
Mm. We've got other texts that we can rely upon to support the divinity of Christ. And when we support the divinity of Christ, we're supporting the Blessed Trinity because we're talking about three distinct divine persons in the one God. So to affirm the divinity of the second person, the Word, and the third person, the Holy Spirit, of course, we are buttressing, supporting the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. Okay, so there it is, the Trinity, one God, three persons. Now, you're going to help us to easily understand that very confusing concept right now, aren't you, Robert? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll do the best I can. Yes, so <laughs> the precise language we need to use. I remember once coming home on the train and we, I stopped at Lakemba Station on the Bankstown line and I looked out the window and I saw a sign on the wall uh, belonging to the Christadelphians who also denied the divinity of Christ and hence the Trinity. And, they, and it was a statement of faith and they said, we believe in one God, not the Trinity, and in brackets, three gods in one. The Trinity is not three gods in one. The Trinity is one God with one name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So our Lord says at the end of Matthew's gospel, go baptize all nations in the name of, the word name in Greek is onoma, it's singular, in the name of what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the one God has one name, the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And basically, if you want to keep it very simple, the Blessed Trinity, one God, three distinct divine persons in the one God, it is God knowing and loving himself from all eternity. God's knowledge of himself must be infinite and eternal because God is infinite and eternal. God, the mutual knowledge between the Father and the Son must simultaneously uh, beget or give rise to mutual love between the Father and the Son. Hmm. The mutual love of the Father and the Son for each other must likewise be infinite and eternal. Now, infinity and eternity are not the qualities of, not the attributes of creatures. Only one being can have these attributes, infinity and eternity, and that's God. So God begets the Son as an intellectual begetting, God knowing himself in the Son. And the mutual knowledge and the mutual love between the Father and the Son is the procession of the Holy Spirit. Because God's knowledge and love of himself are both infinite and eternal, they can't be creatures. Yeah. They are divine in essence. Now, the language I'm using is the best language I can provide to you right now. It's probably not, probably there are other persons who could speak to it better than myself. But whatever language we ever use, whatever words we ever use, can never be sufficient to properly uh, give definition to the Blessed Trinity. It is the, a strict mystery. It is the greatest of all mysteries. This is why it's the first chapter of Defend the Faith. Okay? <laughs> we will only, as human beings, know and understand the Trinity and know why God needs to be a Trinity, God willing, when, we're in, when we are in heaven and behold God face to face. There's a lot there. Um, so 
um, I want to get this right. So because God knows himself, so um, like I know myself uh, better than you know me, just as you know yourself uh, better than I know you. So we, in a sense, have an image of ourselves. And this is the same for God, right? And that That's image correct. is infinite and perfect and so perfect that it is a whole nother person. Is that right? That's right. See, your knowledge of yourself is limited, imperfect, mm. and mm. it's in time. It has a beginning, has an end, and it's not comprehensive. It's piecemeal. You don't know everything about yourself. You can't remember everything about yourself when you, were, when you were one and two years of age. You don't know every atom in your body, every blood cell in your body. You don't know your future. So your knowledge of yourself is imperfect and limited. God, however, his knowledge of himself, as I, as I have already said, is infinite and eternal. It's perfect. It can't be any more or less. It can't change. It is because it's eternal, co-eternal with God. Mm. It has the attribute that only a divine being could have, eternity. It must be God as well, without being a separate God. Now, you notice I've used the term distinct persons, not separate persons, because we can't look at the Trinity as if it's like a cake we can cut up into three different pieces and separate them. Where one person is, the other two persons necessarily must be there. This is another doctrine we, in Greek called perichoresis, which means dancing together. Where there's one person of the Blessed Trinity, by necessity, the other two persons must be there as well. Okay? Um, the Latin word is succumb and cessio. They're both technical, long-winded theological terms. But we have to understand, if we separate the persons, then we do have more than one God. And yeah. since we don't have more than one God, we can't use the language of separation. We use the term instead of distinct. And again, that is not the most, that is the best word we can use in the circumstances, but it doesn't capture the mystery comprehensively. And it's probably important to uh, to point out that uh, probably oceans of ink have been put to page trying to describe the Trinity, but ultimately what we're talking about is a mystery. And, you know, I'm glad you used the term ocean because it reminds you of the story of St Augustine. You mm. might remember it. When Pope Benedict was Pope, he used to have wear vestments that had a collection of shells, seashells. And that related to the story of St. Augustine one day when he's walking along the beach. And what he was doing, he was trying to comprehend the, the mystery of the Trinity. He wrote a great work against Arianism called the, the Trinitate on the Trinity. And he was going along this beach, thinking about the Trinity, trying to get a grasp of it, et cetera, et cetera. And he came across a boy digging a hole in the sand and trying to fill that hole with water from the sea, using the seashell to pick up the water and put it into the hole. And St. Augustine asked the boy, what are you doing? And the boy re responded by saying, well, I'm trying to fit the whole ocean into this hole. And, so, and St. Augustine said, well, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. And the boy responded by saying, well, it's more possible than it is for you to try and understand the Trinity in your own mind. <laughs> and then the boy disappeared because according to this story which i i wish I, I want to believe and i do believe some would put it in the in the realm of legend but legend means a readable or worthy story mm. uh to read uh, 
you know, that that boy was really an angel who then disappeared to, and gave that lesson of in of humility to St. Augustine. Wow, I, I hadn't heard that story. That is absolutely mm. amazing. And it, yeah, um, I likewise hope that that little pious legend is true. Mm. Mm. So you've got God the Father and God the Son, and they're a perfect image of each other. And we learn from John's gospel that God is love. And so the Father looks at the Son with complete self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And because the highest form of love is willing the good of the other, he pours out his love upon the Son, right? And the Son, being a perfect image of the Father, is pours out himself in self-sacrificing, self-giving love upon the Father, because the highest form of love is willing the good of the other. And I believe the Greek fathers uh, refer to this then as this spiration of the Holy Spirit, that the love passing between the two is such a perfect image of both that it is a whole other person. Is that right? That's correct. And you notice here, too, that it is the mutual knowledge between the Father and the Son begets a mutual love between the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Now, this is, goes to another controversy relating to the filioque way, okay? Um, we could probably do an entire episode on yeah, the filioque way, yeah, couldn't we? <laughs> that's true. But we, we assert that the Holy Spirit proceeds from, the, from both the Father and the Son, mm. and it must, by necessity, I mean, there's only one arche, there's only one origin in the Trinity, and that's the Father. It's the Father that begets the Son. It's not the Son that begets the Father. The Father begets the Son from all eternity, right? But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is um, proceeds from both the Father and the Son because it is the mutual love between the Father and the Son. So this is understanding the what's called the Trinitarian economy or the, the internal life of the Trinity, all right? Mm. We can't, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't pr proceed from the Father first and then from the Son. It mm. proceeds from the Father and the Son simultaneously from all eternity. So that's why we must assert that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Of course, this, this was inserted into the creed, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed in the 7th century, first in the local council in Spain, for the purposes of combating the Arianism, the lingering Arianism of the Visigoths tribe in the, in the Iberian Peninsula in that century. So when we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, it's also meant to be a defence of the divinity of Christ. Hmm. Interesting. So let's get back to then to this, uh, this objection um, on the Trinity, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not found in the Bible. Uh, firstly, is that true? The short answer is no. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but there are many Christian words not found in the Bible. Okay. Um, uh, Trinity, transubstantiation, purgatory what's important though is that is the doctrine of the trinity materially present in scripture and the answer is yes and it's a double yes because we can find traces of it in the old testament and we can find definite uh expressions of the or outpourings of the of the blessed trinity so to speak in various texts in the new testament okay and you've referred to scripture to help us get at some, um, you know, the, the understanding of this doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I've heard it said, um, uh, particularly from St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, 
five proofs for the existence of God that with philosophy alone, we can get to uh, proof of the existence of God. But can we get to proof of the Trinity by philosophy alone? Or no. does it require um, revelation? It requires revelation. We okay. call the Trinity a strict mystery, meaning that we could never have come to know the Trinity through natural reason, through philosophical reason, through the exploration of, of the observable universe. We only are aware of the Trinity because Jesus Christ himself revealed it. With that revelation from Jesus Christ, then we can reflect back on Old Testament texts where we can say, oh, hey, okay, there were clues about the Trinity given to us, which we didn't realize at the time were clues. But now in hindsight, wearing the Jesus glasses, so to speak, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we can see the Trinity obliquely revealed in the Old Testament, but then later on fully revealed in the New. So it's clearly then um, something that has come down to us by a magisterial authority and magisterial teaching. Is there a particular point in history where the doctrine of the Trinity first appears? Uh, well, look, we, we have it firstly in scripture. We have it in church fathers. If we go to the chapter on Defend the Faith, yeah. I've included one, two, three, four, five, six quotes from church fathers, uh, which somehow speak of the Trinity, starting with Pope St. Clement of Rome, in the late first century, then we have uh, the, 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 the Acts of the Martyrdom of St. Polycarp in the mid-second century, St. Theophilus of Antioch in the late second century, St. Irenaeus of Leon likewise in the late second century, St. Ambrose of Milan in the late fourth century, and St. Augustine of Hippo in the early fifth century. So we see a variety of fathers um, Eastern and Western fathers. So when that controversy arose, uh, particularly from Arius denying the divinity of Christ and therefore the, the, the Blessed Trinity, the, the Catholic faith was already there. It was being denied by Arius and his denial gained great traction until we got to a point where by the mid to second half of the fourth century AD, the vast majority of bishops in the world were either Arian or semi-Arian, uh, which was a colossal disaster at the time. Uh, what we needed was dogmatic teaching at a magisterial level, that is an ecumenical council affirmed by the Bishop of Rome. And we first get that, the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, and hence the creed that we say in Mass, the Nicene Creed, where we have, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, etc., of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. We get that from the Council of Nicaea, but then we have a counterattack from the Arians, um, from the 330s AD onwards, mm. and with the support of the various Roman emperors, where they endeavoured to rewrite the Nicene Creed, that was ultimately defeated only in AD 381, when the fathers of the Council of Constantinople, first Constantinople, uh, reaffirmed the Nicene Creed, but then added extra text relating to the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, 
With the Father and the Son, he's worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And that was the original text of the Council of Night of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And that's the creed we say in the Catholic Church today. The Orthodox still say that. The Melkites say that. Later mm -hmm. on in the Roman Catholic Church, or the Catholic Church, to be more accurate, we accepted and, and embraced the text who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I've already explained why that was the case. So, mm -hmm. yes, when we have the definitions of the conciliar definitions of Nicaea and Constantinople one, it's not creating new teaching. It's not adding new teaching. It's not changing original teaching. It's reaffirming at a magisterial level in dogmatic terms, a solemn uh, teaching of the church at its highest levels, declaring what is the Catholic faith with respect to God, the Trinity, and the divinity of Christ, and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So is the doctrine of the Trinity a dogma? It is now. It is because by virtue of the councils of Ni first Nicaea and first Constantinople. Mm. And um, because it was taught from the, the, the beginning, um, even if you were to argue it's not a dogma, it could, it's still argued that this is an infallible doctrine. Is that correct? Well, firstly, it's, it's a doctrine that's revealed through Scripture. And that, mm -hmm. should ordinarily be a, 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 that should ordinarily be enough. But then mm -hmm. you get all sorts of controversies arising concern, uh, due to the interpretation of Scripture or asserting one verse over another, et cetera, et cetera. So then you need, well, you have to have a look at what is all the ordinary teaching of the church, consistent teaching over the century. That's called ordinary magisterium. That likewise is infallible mm -hmm. because you, you would not have the church being deceived or falling into error in such a grave matter over such a prolonged period of time. The Holy Spirit protects the church through her ordinary teaching, consistent, consistent teaching over the centuries, which existed before Arius. Hmm. Arius challenged the existing teaching, the consistent teaching of previous century, and asserted his interpretation uh, that he really developed from other persons before him, like Lucian of Antioch in, from AD 260 onwards, right? As he asserted his teaching over and above previous ordinary magisterial teaching. But then because of the crisis, then there is a necessity to affirm what the Catholic Church's teaching is at a next level, which a more solemn level, dogmatic level of the world's bishops gathered together to give us a precise definition, also protected and guided by the Holy Spirit, mm. as the first council in Jerusalem, well, the scriptural council in Jerusalem was around AD 50, recording the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, etc. Um, and that is affirmed by the popes. At Nicaea, the Bishop of Rome had two priest representatives, and later on, the Pope at the time, just escapes my mind, I think it was Sylvester, just I presume it was Sylvester the first, affirmed the, the creed of the Council of Nicaea. And then that teaching, which was scriptural, apostolic tradition, ordinary magisterium, is raised to the level, level of dogma. 
And so all of our infallible doctrines, including dogma, are actually requirements of faith, aren't they? We, we are required to believe these in order to be in full communion with Holy Mother Church, right? Absolutely. No questions asked. All right. There you have it. Well, uh, we're getting uh, close to the hour, but what I'd like to do um, before we finish up is uh, just to read the, the quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that you've included in the book, uh, Defend the Faith. Uh, this is paragraph number 237. The Trinity is a mystery of faith in the strict sense, one of the mysteries that are hidden in God, which can never be known unless they are revealed by God. To be sure, God has left traces of his Trinitarian being in his work of creation and in his revelation throughout the Old Testament. But his inmost being as Holy Trinity is a mystery that is inaccessible to reason alone or even to Israel's faith before the incarnation of God's Son and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Do mm. you have any uh, comments or anything to add? Well, I think that that paragraph 237 of the Catechism is referring to these quotes from Scripture, the book of Genesis. Then this is Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Mm -hmm. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The us, the plural. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't tell us immediately blessed Trinity, but it, is, it being in the plural, it insinuates a plurality of persons. Likewise, Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, mm. knowing good and evil. Uh, Jewish interlocutors with Christian apologists in the early centuries would give the definition of us to mean God and the angels speaking to each other. Mm. Uh, but then we have Genesis 11.7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So there is God again speaking with the divine plural plural and what is that divine plural it must be a plurality of persons in god but that's what we come to conclude in after we have the revelation of christ and i now just want to just give a handful of new testament scriptures that support the blessed trinity um and i'll go first with luke 1 34 to 35 and the angel said to her, that is our lady, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There we see three persons mentioned, mm. the Most High, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. Then mm. we have at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Um, let me find this. Yes, Mark 1, 10 to 11. And when he came out, out up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with with who i am well pleased again we see three persons there we mm -hmm. see we hear the voice from heaven that's the voice of the father we have the son the beloved son in the water being baptized and we have the holy spirit descending in the form of a dove so we, again, we, that text reveals three persons. And then we, I'll finish with Matthew 28, 19, 20. Jesus' mm -hmm. great commissioning. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, and I already referred to that, the onoma, the name of, the singular, 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. So there we have the Blessed Trinity. We have it in action. We have the persons uh, clearly revealed to us. And we see that these three persons are form one name of the one God. Wonderful. Um, for anyone who's interested in delving a bit deeper, uh, is there any books that you recommend that go into the subject of the Trinity? Oh, you've got me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> off the top of my head, look, there are plenty of books, I guess. Really, the, the classics, I already mentioned St. Augustine's. You can get the Church Fathers and read what St. Athanasius wrote. Mm -hmm. um, we have the Trinitate by St. Augustine. We have St. Hilary of Poitiers, I think, brought out a similar a book, on, similarly so entitled on the Trinity. Um, in modern times, look, you probably would find apologetical books which encompass many different topics, which would include early on topics on, on the Trinity. Again, you've got me on the hop there, but uh, it wouldn't be difficult to find great Catholic material in defence of the, um, the Blessed Trinity. Obviously, after this interview, I'll remember the books immediately and say, so I should have said this, I should have said that. I've got one right in front of me here, yeah. which is called Counterfeit Christ by Trent Horn. Now, this one, the, there's a chapter here defending the divinity of Christ as against the Jehovah Witnesses. Okay. And, of course, that chapter would therefore be defending the Catholic belief in the, in the Blessed Trinity. Uh, there, there's volumes of books one could refer to. I'm looking at my library right now to see if I could uh, have my memory triggered in any way. Faith if of our fathers. If you think yes. of any, you can email me and I can put them in the, uh, the show notes. I've got two there. The, the Catholicism and Fundamentalism by... Um, our friend who founded Catholic Answers in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, what's his name? Paul Keating. Paul Keating, thank you. And Faith of Our Fathers, a great classic from the United States um, from the late 19th century, Cardinal Gibbons, and, of course, my old favourite, The Question Box by Father uh, Conway, okay. which is still available on uh, and, uh, the, the last version that's reliable is from 1962. You can get it on Amazon. Okay, excellent. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we've come to the end uh, of our very first Defend the Faith Live. Robert, I, I hope you've had some fun doing this. Oh, it's outstanding. Thank you very much. Again, thank you for the great honour, the great privilege to do this. And it's always a great privilege to work with Perugia and with yourself, Matthew. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, and uh, I, I suspect from the bottom of everyone's hearts who listen uh, or watch these videos, uh, we want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us as well. You're welcome. Most welcome. All right. Well, this is the very first episode of Defend the Faith, the introduction, who Robert Haddad is, and the Holy Trinity. Uh, I'm Matthew Herman Taig, and I'm the events coordinator, amongst other things, for Perusia, apparently including uh, podcast hosts these days. And I uh, just want to thank anyone who has listened or, or watched this video. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends 
And for more information about everything Carusia, please visit our website at carusiamedia.com.